This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today is episode 101. We're going to be interviewing Courtney and Josh S. How are you folks doing this morning? Doing great. Doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So we're doing a couples interview today. So for you guys, did you always use together or do you guys have like two separate stories of how it began? I think that we we each individually kind of started out on our own journey to, to addiction. But when we got very heavily into um, drugs and alcohol, it was something that that we did together. Just as, just as normal as a, a date night or. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, it was a great, it was a, a great feedback loop. Um, Cause you know, anytime I had, I had any urges or cravings to, to, uh, to use um, I could always bounce it off my partner who was also just as rational as I was and was like, yeah, let's use, let's do it. <laughs> I like you know? just as rational as you. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, I think we were both addicts uh, in our own, in our own way when we met. And when, uh, when we got together, um, I, I think uh, addiction just found a place to burrow itself. So it definitely that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So real quick, just to give us a little backstory, let's start with you, Courtney. Tell us a little bit about growing up and stuff. How is that? Did you have any type of things that might have led into your addiction? Yeah, I mean, my, my mom had me in, in high school. She was a, I was the product of a, a teen pregnancy. The... Um, my my father did not want anything to to do with you know having a baby. He was still in high school himself. Actually, the the night that um, I was born, apparently my my father was at a concert with another woman, who he ended up getting pregnant, and then I you know inevitably have a brother from from that relationship. So. Um, you know, my, my mom was a, a kid herself. So my grandparents kind of had stepped in and raised me um, as much as they could. But once my um, mom got pregnant again, two years later with my brother, and then another two years later, my other brother, um, I, it was almost like she resented us, I guess, that that we had stolen her her childhood or her early 20s and you know the time where you would normally be going to college or experiencing life or you know going going to the bars with your friends and everything so as as we got a little bit older um you know it was just like boyfriend after boyfriend man after man um it it was just this revolving door of all the all these men in and out of the house and I remember my grandparents had said that they um, they came over to the home one time and I was six and then my other two brothers were four and two and my grandparents have told me that um, like I I was we were all like either in our underwear diapers 
Um, one of my brothers was up on the cabinet. I'm six years old trying to make them, you know, breakfast or lunch. Um, I don't recall what, what time of day it was. And then my youngest brother, who was two, was eating um, like mac macaroni and cheese in a pan from like the day before, like just out of there. So my grandparents had um, just take, you know, they, they scooped me up and had taken me and I, I've had conversations with them and they've said that that was their biggest regret that they only took me and not my two brothers, but they had just felt so inclined to do that because I'm a little girl in the, in the home with all these, you know, men that are just coming in and out, strangers, uh, you know, my, my mother was drinking and just constantly intoxicated and partying and everything. So um, they, they had kept me then once they had taken me, my, my mom didn't like fight, you know, to, to get me back or anything like that. And um, it was years probably until I was like, probably like four years later when I was 10. Um, she, I hadn't heard from her, like didn't, didn't call me on birthdays, nothing like would never see my mom. And she lived like 10, 15 minutes, maybe up the road. So as I got a little bit older, um, I'd say probably around the age of 10 is when she came back in to my life. But to, you know, later on, I, I realized that that was because, you know, she didn't want me to move back in with her because, you know, she loved me or she missed me or wanted to reconnect and, you know, try to try to have that mother daughter relationship. It was because I she felt like I was old enough at that time to be a free babysitter for for my brothers. So I naively, you know, thinking that my mother wanted to develop this relationship was, of course, excited. You know, I'm a, a child craving, you know, that that attention. So I moved back in and it, it wasn't long until she was out all the time. I mean, you know, she justified it by, well, you know, I'm a single mom and and I work these long hours. So it's okay for me to never be home or to, to be at the bar drinking or bringing these men into the home that are strangers. And as, as I got older, it just kept, you know, getting more and more where, where she was never there. I mean, I was, you know, getting my brothers up for school and making them breakfast and doing their homework with them and bringing them back from school and making sure they had dinner and just all those things that, that my mom should have been doing, I was doing. So I, I had to grow up really quickly. Um, you know, there was instances where, you know, I remember I was 13 and she was going to a white snake concert with her and her girlfriend. And somehow they had dragged me along to it. And I remember like being like down in the mosh pit area and just people are, passing joints around. And I mean, it, it was just absolutely insane. And I'm just here in the middle of it. And her and her friend had gotten so intoxicated that they made me at 13 drive them home. And we were probably a good hour away from the house. Oh, wow. Yeah. So have you, had you ever driven a car before? Like sure. No, 
No, I mean, I I think I had like ridden on a, or drove a lawnmower, but not that that, you know, justifies a vehicle. Um, So, so yeah, it it was just a a very dysfunctional um, home. And as, you know, when I was around 15, 16, then, you know, she wanted to be around me more, but that was because she was giving me alcohol and she had a drinking buddy and somebody, you know, to, to do all those things with. And then, you know, I was, I was the greatest daughter in the world and she loved me so much. And so at 16, she started drinking with you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. So we would, you know, I remember there was this bar, like right at the end of the road we lived on and she would bring me up there and uh, you know, we would just, party and and drink and you know I I thought that was acceptable I thought that's what daughters did with their mothers because I didn't have any anything to base that you know that off of 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 what a mother should look like so yeah it was um you know it it was pretty wild but that's kind of a a brief (laughs) overview I guess you could say of of kind of how my childhood went so what about you, buddy? How was your childhood growing up? You know, so I grew up uh, in Florida in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, single family, you know, mom and a dad and me, um, middle class. Uh, my dad was a Vietnam vet. Um and I come late later on, uh, learned that he had, uh, he was bipolar. He had some drug and alcohol issues. Um, and so this, the problems with my father, that's where all my stuff comes from, right? Everything's traced back to my dad. Um, so growing up, uh, everything was fine till about, I, I want to say about five years old, about five years old. And, and then the sexual abuse started from my father. Um, he, I, I learned from about six to, I'm going to say about 10 or 11, um, that the only way I could get my father's love and attention, uh, was to be pliable, uh, when he wanted to abuse me. Right. So that, so when I say that, I mean, like my, my father, he never, he never hugged me. He never held my hand. He never kissed me. He never, he never told me he was proud of me. Um, and these aren't exactly, like he never communicated any of that. Not one time. And we never had conversations. I've, I never sat down and spoke with my father like I'm talking to you right now. Um, he refused to speak. Uh, he refused to speak to me flat out. So the only the only attention, uh, verbal, physical, anything at all, um, was during abuse behind closed doors. Um, and, and like, you know, Courtney just said, I, I had no other um, story or belief system to bounce that off of. So I thought that's what fathers and sons did. Um, and that abuse became, it, it, it almost became um, like, this is the only time where my dad loves me and shows me attention. So something that was extremely painful, I was, I was trying at the same time, um, I was trying to accept it, even though my brain wouldn't, my body wouldn't, I, you know, my brain would try to disassociate and, and escape to some other, you know, five, six, seven-year-old kids you know, idea of another planet, you know, because whatever's happening to me is horrible. At the same time, I, uh, I was like, well, you know, my dad showed me love and he spoke to me, you know, so I, I probably need to accept this because this is the only time I'm going to get attention. 
Um, and my mom had no idea she had to work. Um, she was out working because my dad refused to get a job. Um, he was a draftsman at one time down in Tampa where we lived and, and he, he, he drew up blueprints for the city. And, um, and at some point he just stopped working um, and he just stayed home and he did drugs all day long. And he stayed in his room. The interesting part about him was birthdays, Christmas, any time where you would expect um, a family to get together. My father would never come out of his room. So, so my mom would be present, right? So for instance, take a Christmas morning. My mom and I would be opening up Christmas presents and about eight feet away would be my parents' bedroom door. And he'd be in there drunk, high, whatever the case may be. And, and he wouldn't come out. He just would not come out. Um, and he did this for the first 13 years of my life. He, he just didn't show up. And, and it's funny because I was in a I was in a, a an AA meeting a couple of weeks or well probably about a couple of months ago, and my sponsor is about the same age as my father, right? And so when I got into this meeting, um, I saw a bunch of men my father's age communicating in ways I'd never seen men communicate. Period, and it just absolutely blew me away. And I remember at the very end we stood up and we did the Lord's prayer and we all held hands, right? And I, I remember as soon as my sponsor grabbed my hand and I held his hand, I, I, I immediately started getting emotional um, and I started crying. I started weeping um, because I immediately got transferred to, be, to being a five-year-old boy. And I remember telling him afterwards, I said, you know, that was the first time I'd ever held a grown man's hand and felt loved. I mean, it was like inner child, inner child stuff, like almost immediately. What a shitty thing to feel. Right, right. Yeah, right. It was, yeah, it was, it was super shitty. I mean, I was glad I was feeling it, but you know, since I've gotten into sobriety and I've talked to my mom a lot about this, I've done a lot of, you know, a lot of work. um, I've I've come to realize my father was jealous, right? He was jealous of me. The idea of having a kid was great. um, But as soon as I was born from talking to my mother, he just immediately just, he separated. He wanted nothing to do with me. Um, And so for the, what did he feel like you guys were both fighting for mom's attention? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was winning out. I was winning out hands down. And I, and I think in an early, in, in, in my early age, she made it very clear to him that that was what was going to happen. That was what was going to take place. Um, and he could either accept it or, or, or move on. Um, and I think mentally he moved on until he physically moved on when I was 13. But so this guy, so, so, one of the problems I have as an adult is during my addiction, of course, we all manip- well, I manipulated, stole, um, sold everything I could get my hands on to, to feed the addiction. But one of the things I was really, really good at um, in a horrible way was manipulation. I always knew and had a desired outcome to every conversation I had with any human being I came across in contact with. And my dad taught me that. He taught me at a very young age um, that lying to women, lying to my mother, lying to somebody, uh, it, it works and manipulates. So he, what he did was he lied about, um, he would, he would make checks. He would literally make these, these checks. I don't know where, where he got them, but he had these checks probably from a previous work. And what he would do is he would, he would make those to where they would look like a job. He had just told my mom he had. So say he was, I was where he was working at some gas station. He would hand her this check and be like, here's my check. He would dress up in, in a uniform from that place, like somehow he'd, he'd finagle his shirt from, say, S- Speedway gas station. 
and he'd have that. He would, he would literally go away and come back like 10 minutes after my mom would get home and he'd hand her a check for the week. <clears throat> and they never, they never cleared. They always bounced, but he always, he always kept this lie going with her for years. And I don't, I don't know how she didn't know. Maybe she just, I don't know, maybe love turned into pity. Maybe she did know, felt sorry for him. But where I come into it is he made me a part of his lie, right? So he, he explained to me, and this is probably one of the, I guess, one of the only conversations I ever had with him is after, after some abuse took place, he explained to me that this is what he was going to do to my mom. This is what was going to take place. Um, and, and I had no choice but to take part in it. And so I, I never had agreements with my father. So anytime he abused me, there was a gun that he always had his gun on the dresser. It was always within eyes, eyes view. Um, and then there was, yeah, I, I think so because initially I wasn't sure, but then when it came to times where him and I had disagreements, um, say he'd, he'd be coming home from the gas station and I'd be riding my bike and he'd pull up next to me and he'd point a gun at me and be like, you know where I'm coming from. Don't say a word to your mom. He's put, he put guns in my mouth on numerous occasions to shut up about the abuse. Um, that must've been pretty- terrifying. It was, it was, uh, he, he, you know, he threatened to kill me. He, you know, he, he just, I don't know. He, I, I forgave him a while back, but when my mom, so my mom put him on a bus when he was, when, when I was 13 years old and was like, you know, basically beat it, get out, you know, you're, you're a piece of hang. And, uh, and I haven't seen him since. Right. So I'm 30, I'll be 39 this year. So I haven't, I haven't heard his voice. I haven't seen him. Like he, he died that day to me. Um, and I tried to look, work in step nine. I tried to, I tried to, you know, I wanted to go back and try and find him. Right. I'm like, Hey, you were an addict. I'm an addict. Um, you know, try to, you know, just, honestly, I just wanted to sit down and talk to him. Like, what were you thinking? Right. Like abusing a small boy and putting guns in their mouths. Like what, you know, what, what was the, what was the thought process there? You know? Um, but yeah, so 13, my mom, here's the, the really interesting part. About two years elapsed after my dad left, where it was just me and my mom. And then she met somebody and she, I, and I could see she started to experience joy. She started to experience happiness and hope and, and strength. And, and she, she just became a totally different woman. And, and so she ended up getting remarried and they ended up having a child that's 15, my sister, um, who's 15 years younger than me. And I was happy for them. But what that looked like was they had this beautiful little nuclear family now that was moving forward emotionally, physically, and in life. And I felt like I was being left behind. Like I wasn't a part of this family and I had so much trauma and grief to process. I had no idea how to process it. Um, And so they were moving forward. I wasn't, it turned into a lot of problems. And I started using drugs at 12 uh, on a daily basis, about 12, 13. Um, That's, I started with acid um, because it was, I lived in, I started with acid. I started with acid. Yeah. So Southwest Florida. Yeah, it was, it was, um, South, Southwest Florida. So I grew up in Fort Myers, Florida and acid was a big deal. And ecstasy was a big deal back in the early nineties. Um, so yeah, I mean, I had, I had, and I had access to this stuff. So, I mean, I smoked pot, drank alcohol, um, ecstasy acid on a, basically on a daily basis. I was, I was high because that's the only thing I could find that just shut, shut my brain up. Right. I mean, I think we all, we all know that it works temporarily for that. And, and so the temporary relief turns into temporary every day for 20 plus years. 
So uh, I turned I turned 16, um, 17 years old, and and I joined the military. Um, I, I remember a recruiter told me he was like, you know, he's like, you can go to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, or you can go to Vicenza, Italy. And I was like, sign me up, Bob. I'm out of here. So I, I, you know, at 17 years old, I I flew off to Italy to live for the next five years. So I spent 17 to 21 living in Europe, and cool. um, yeah, it's <clears throat> so good to get away. It was a great escape, um, but man, did it feed my alcoholism. I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it, the military taught me a lot of things. Um, it taught me how to shave my face, taught me how to be a leader, taught me how to be a man in most situations, or at least I thought so. But it definitely showed me my propensity to become a raging alcoholic um, because it was so socially acceptable. And yeah. especially, especially, you know, in Europe, 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, in Italy, if you can sit at the bar you can, you know, you're, you're servable. And, and so the drug stopped with the alcohol picked up in a way that was just, you know, super heavy, but so um, you switched over through the years from acid into booze. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so what, what was the first time you, you used um, alcohol? The day my mom put the day my mom put my dad on a bus to Colorado. It's the last of the day she kicked him out on the way home from the bus station she bought a six pack of wine coolers and, and we drank them together when I got home um, when I was 13. And that's the only time she ever did anything like that. She wasn't the type of parent that, that would do something like that. She, you know, she was a really good, good mom and, and did the best she could. But that was the first time I tasted um, cognitive numbness, right? That was the first time that I felt anything other than trauma and pain. Um, so yeah, that, that was it. Well, about 13 years old. Yeah. You started off really young with everything. Still can't believe acid was the first one. That's pretty heavy duty. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I, and I fell in love, I fell in love with it. Um, so I mean, acid, ecstasy, pot and alcohol, right. That, that was everything until I got, I joined the army. And, and then when I got in the army, alcohol was the only option. It's when I got out of the army after 15 years in the military, which is where we met, by the way, we met in the military. I'm sure you'll get there, but that's when I turned to the opiates and, and whatnot when I got out. So, but yeah, that's my, that's my short, short and fuzzy on the, on the beginnings. Well, yeah, you both had some things you had to go through to get where you are today. That's, that's why I always ask because most of us, we don't have boring stories. Most of us have a lot of stuff that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you met while you were in the military. How old were you guys when you first met? Uh, 20, I was 22. Yeah, you're 22. 22, 23. Because we met in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And you were 25, 26. Was I that young? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 relatively, Relatively young. That's good. Yeah, yeah. And where did you guys meet? Where did we what? Meet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so Josh had actually um the unit I was assigned to, he had transferred from a different Wait, unit. You, you were in the military also? Right, yeah. That's oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. So you guys met while okay. Yeah. I thought he was in active duty and he just met you somewhere. So that's cool. Yeah, so he came to the unit uh, that I was assigned to a, a chemical unit as the new training NCO. 
for for the unit and uh thing things kind of I mean just picked up I mean if you ask him he'll say that I stalked him but <laughs> so not what happened yeah it's it, so for for people that probably don't know about military stuff um so yeah, I did, I did, I did uh, five years in Italy on active duty, and then the last ten years of my career was as National Guard. So I, I was in the Ohio Army National Guard, and, and Courtney was in the Ohio Army National Guard, and so the, they come in on 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 the weekends and do their training in the two weeks in the summer. But during Monday through Friday, there's three guys there that work full time, right? There's a training NCO that handles all the training. There's a readiness NCO guy who does all the administrative stuff. And there's a supply guy who does all the logistical stuff. I was the training guy that was there. And, and so we transferred back and forth to units. So my first, for, so the first weekend that the unit showed up, um, that's when she showed up. Um, and, and it happened to be a, a, a training exercise where we, you know, packed all everything that was green and went out to the woods and did training. And I, and I remember, um, we were in the middle of a place called Muscatatuck, Indiana. It's some hole in the wall because the army purchased, you know, any, any, any military uh, land is always, well, you got Fort Dix up there, right? Yeah, Fort, Fort Dix, New Jersey. Right. So, you know, it, usually it's not the best uh, land, right? You know, it's not, you know, coastal waterways and whatnot. So we were in this, you know, basically a shithole in Indiana and we were training and uh, I saw her out there putting up a tent and I just thought, wow, you know, she's, you know, of course, the first thing when you when you see someone, you don't go, hey, look at the morals and ethics on her. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I just I saw her. And I was like, wow, you know, she's smoking hot. And but I had to, you know, I was in E6. Um, so, you know, there's you have to be careful with rank. And so I didn't know her rank. I didn't know anything about her yet. So but that's where we met. We met in the military. Um, so, yeah, we met in the military. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, when you guys met, were you both in active addiction or were you on the way there? Or tell me about that. I, was, said, I think you said the first night you met, it was like you guys just went right off yeah, to, uh, to drinking. Yeah, yeah, we, um, yeah, I was definitely drinking all the time. I mean, that never, the only time I didn't drink was when I was at basic for, for 11 weeks and that's because you couldn't but I definitely would have if if it would have been available um but yeah I, I was drinking um I I actually I wasn't I hadn't gotten into to the pain pills quite yet I or no I, you know what I just started because I I had gotten injured on at another training site uh for the military and so I was sent to this, this pain doctor who started prescribing Percocets. Um, but at that point, it wasn't something that I, I had to have. And it, it was all consuming. And, you know, like that, that's all I thought about. Like, I, I didn't care about anything else at that point. But my, the alcoholism was definitely hot and heavy. And as far as I, me, I had had the previous drug use. When I met her, I was, I was on about a fifth of bourbon a day habit. Um, so I, I was definitely fully in my alcoholism and I had just, so I got diagnosed with PTSD and TBI. Cause I, I did a, a tour in Iraq in, in 03, 04. 
So when I got home, I had my own traumas from that. So when I met her at the time, the VA, which is where I still get my health care, the VA was prescribing Percocet for just about anything and everything you, you could go in and complain about. And so I went in there and, and got pain pills. So I was, so when, when we met, I was, I was fully, fully uh, addicted to pain pills and, uh, and, and, and fully into my alcoholism when we met. So yeah, definitely. So tell me how you guys grew together as far as once you met, when did it become serious? And when did you guys, when did you first realize you guys had a problem? Was it one of you figured it out, told the other, or how did that happen? Uh, well, we think things moved pretty quickly. <laughs> um, once, you know, we had met, I was actually still married to my first husband at the time, uh, but it was a, a very, I mean, dysfunctional relationship. It was one of those where, like, I went into it already with the intention of knowing that at some point I was going to divorce him, which, you know, that that's not very strong footing to start a marriage out, no, at, yeah, out with. <laughs> um, and, you know, on top of that, he was 23 years older than me. Um, I had serious abandonment issues and daddy issues of course of course you know I mean if you marry somebody that that's is that much older than you um he was extremely um verbally abusive he was taking steroids so it was always like hot and cold um you know just constant I mean anytime I had to to go anywhere whether it be the military or to, to school for a college class. I mean, it was like, it, it was always an interrogation. You know, I was always cheating on him and which I wasn't at that point. Um, but, you know, then it had gotten to the point where he would start, you know, getting upset and throwing, you know, throwing stuff. Like he always made sure that like, if he threw something, it, it didn't hit me. It was always like right beside me or at my feet. Um, but I, I already was, was out the door when, when I met Josh, um, it was more like once I met him, he, he was kind of that final push that I needed to, to, you know, leave my first husband and be like, okay, like enough's enough. I'm done with this. Um, you know, Josh was so amazing. So wonderful. He always has treated me amazing. Um, so I think about within like two weeks of us meeting, I moved, I moved in with him. <laughs> so it was, you, guys, you guys sound like me and my ex, except we were, we were not meant for each other, but that was part <laughs> of the problem is we moved so quickly and I was in a bad spot. I was in the middle of my addiction. I feel yeah. bad that I was with her. I mean, I once said to her, she doesn't talk to me anymore, but I was like, you should give this a chance not to get back to We can't be together, but we're co-parents. Because I'm like, Nikki, you've never met me sober. Right. Mm -hmm. When I met you, I was snorting Adderall. Like my idea of being sober was I quit drinking and I started snorting Adderall and Klonopin. That was sober to me. It was mm -hmm. like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if yeah. someone told me that, I'd be like, dude, what the hell are you talking about? You sound like yeah. an idiot. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. That was my that idea. Yeah. I was hoping she would give this a shot because when you have kids together, 
a kid is not going to do well when you have two parents that don't talk and they're fighting when they do talk. They're just not going to do well versus mommy and daddy still love each other and, or at least give the impression. You know what I mean? You don't have to love me, but make believe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. That st- people that stay together, in my opinion, stay together uh, for kids. Yeah. You give that child the worst example of what a, a relationship is supposed to look like. Right. Exactly. You're better so, off. We're better off separate. Yeah. 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 And now, so as far as where I was, when I met her, I, I so when I got, when I got home from Iraq, I, I, I was engaged and I, and I, and so her and I, um, we had met in middle school, this, this, um, this, uh, girl, my ex-wife, we had met in, in middle school. Um, and then we dated on and off in high school. And then when I deployed to Iraq, um, we had got engaged. And, and so when I got home <clears throat> from Iraq in 2003, I had lost a bunch of friends and a bunch of young guys had gotten killed when I was over there. And so when I got home, I, I was in such a hurry to live. I was in such a hurry to get married, have kids, buy a house, get the minivan, because I was so afraid of, of death, right? Because I mean, I saw, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids just end, um, you know, quite quickly. And so I got married uh, in, in 2004 when I got home from Iraq to her. And we had a son who is my oldest son, uh, Courtney's stepson now. Um, and we were married for like five years. And, and you know, I look back and, and I wish she passed away two years ago from breast cancer. God rest her soul. Um, I wish I could have apologized to her for the first year uh, that I was married to her because it, it was super rough, super rough. I was I was angry as can be. Um, I was just a horrible person. My addiction was, was, you know, fully rising, uh, in me. Watch that word. You weren't a horrible person. You were a sick person at that time. That's true. That's a great point. You were real sick. Yeah. I was, I mean, don't be wrong. You probably did horrible things. (laughs) I I, I don't think it came from the heart. You know, that's, that's good. I'm going to get her. Let me do something horrible. That's a little different. And you're right. And, and, and I'm glad you said that because words are powerful. Words are powerful. Yep. Yeah, um, sure. So, so yeah, so her and I got divorced in 09. So when I met Courtney um, and her and I co-parented and it was a, a horrible co-parenting experience. She had me in and out of court 121 times in, in 10 years. Um, so I, I was in court constantly. Um, but the last couple of years she was alive, we got along a, lo- a lot better and, and whatnot. So, but to back up, when I, when, when I met Courtney, um, I was, I, yeah, I was, uh, full addiction. Um, and I wanted her, you know, I had always prided myself in like, you know what, I, I've been married before. I know what I want. I know what I don't want. And, and I had all these illusions of, of and, and ideas of grandeur, um, even though I was super sick. And so when I met her, she just, honestly, she just blew my mind. Like she was gorgeous. Um, we, we could talk for hours. Um, and on, on, in some part of me too, um, cause I'm, you know, when I, when I check into a meeting, I say, you know, I'm an alcoholic addict and, and now I've added codependent, right. Cause I know I've, I've got some really serious codependency issues. And so my whole life, and, and I think that goes back not to suck up too much time, but that goes back to nights of waking up when I was like five, six, seven years old. 
and my mom was sleeping on the floor. Right. And my dad is like banging and kicking on the door. And my mom would wake me up and we would together push the dresser in front of the door together. So, you know, we could hide from him. So he couldn't get in the door. So I had this feeling very young, kind of like Courtney did, but in a different way, I didn't have to raise anybody like she did. Um, but I felt like I had to protect my mom from my dad. So, you know, everything we experience as children, we exude as adults. So when I met her and, and she explained to me what was going on with her husband, honestly, I think one of the first things I thought was how can I help? Right. Because that's always been my nature. I want to help everybody. I, you know, I want to let's talk about your emotions so I can escape talking about mine. Um, and, and so when I met her, it, it did. It moved. It was two weeks. She moved in. Um, in, in my brain, I was like, wow, this is so fast. There's no way that, you know, this this is crazy fast. Um, but I never felt that way about anybody. And, and so I, I just you know, I was like, hey, I'm just going to go with it. I've been single for two and a half years. I had done, um, I had done, you know, Josh for two and a half years. I, you know, that was my main goal is I wanted to find out who I was by myself without being married to somebody. Um, and the other thing too is, you know, this, she talks about her husband, like it's on steroids. Like this dude was massive, right? He was huge. I mean, like, you know, he was built like a brick shit house. And so when we first met, we would hide her, she would come to the house, we would hide her truck in the backyard behind the fence. So he, Cause this guy would like drive around and, and look like, like look for around like the area. Um, and we would, so we would hide, we would hide her in her truck. Um, and but, you know, he was, had, from my experience, he probably also had roid rage. I've never met a guy on steroids that didn't have a little bit, you know, a little bit of that. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Courtney shared that with me a lot that that's majority of the time when he was chucking stuff at her head and feet, uh, he was roid raging, you know? And, um, and so, yeah. So two weeks. Um, I also, I think what also sped that up was we got pregnant quite quickly. Well, you got pregnant. I did. October. <laughs> so we met in, in July. we met in July and she was pregnant by October. October right. So that, that pretty much shoved the timeline forward quite quickly. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where we were when we met. Um, as far as your other question about when did we decide we were sick or, or who brought it up? I, I think, you know, when the, when we met each other, we, we, she was in college. Um, I had a great job. She had a good job. Um, we were doing really well financially. We were maintaining, right. Our, you know, so it wasn't out of control yet. When we got together, that's when it got stupid. I mean, they got it. They got really bad out of control. That's when cars started getting repoed. Evictions started. Cars started coming. That's when TVs were sold and Xboxes were sold. That's that's when the true nature of our addiction, I think, really kicked in. Because again, like we said in the beginning, it was like this this insane feedback loop, where you know, if she wanted to use, that would reinforce me wanting to use and then me wanting to get high with her or her wanting to get high with me would reinforce it. So it was just, it was did vicious. You, do you think you were trying to please each other? I was trying to please. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. And we, we weren't, you know, holding each other accountable. Um, you know, we just, we justified what we were, what we were doing because we were doing it together. And, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think too, not to interrupt you. Okay. Um, 
when it comes to, you know, are we sick? Do we have a problem? Um, I think Courtney, Courtney was the first one to say something because she's very financially smart, very financially in tune. Um, you have to be to keep a $300 a day habit together for close to 10 years. Right. Wow. Um, you know, and, and so I think she was the first one that, that it started biting. You can speak on that when it about like the amount of money that was going out. Right. Cause at, at different times, the connections we had, like the first connection might've been her dope man. And that's where we went for a couple of years until something happened. Then we went to my dope man, but she always handled the money. Right. In the relationship. Um, I let go of it. She's smarter than I am. And in, in most of those things. So I think she was the first one to go, Hey, this is costing a lot of money. We just lost our what, fourth or fifth car. We weren't paying our rent anymore. We were 48 hours away from being homeless. I mean, it with three kids or two kids and, and my son co-parenting on the weekend. So it was. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it, it got to the point where, you know, our, our lives have become unmanageable <laughs> and uh, you know, there was nothing left to, to sell or pawn or, you know, nobody left in our lives to manipulate for money so that we could, you know, get our fix and, and get high. And you know, you, you, we hit rock bottom. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was. We were below rock bottom and like, so, okay, something's got to give. Like we had talked about it for years, but it, it was always something we talked about when we were high. So it was always a good idea, you know, like, oh yeah, we're, we're going to so get all high saying, well, we should quit, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's but, over tomorrow after yeah, it's man, over. Dude, no more, yeah. man. Yeah, it's like that diet, you know, that, oh, well, I'll start it tomorrow. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and, here, and here's the really scary part I, 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 I now think about is the financial destruction that takes place. So because she's extremely smart and I was extremely manipulative and willing to, to, to go to any length to, to get what I needed, at the time, we lived just south of Nashville, Tennessee. We had moved down there for, for a, like a year and a half, two years, and, and we ended up coming back to Ohio. But while we were down there, um, you know those cash checking places where you can go and, you, you know, the payday loan places? Yeah. Yep. So we would go around and we would go get the highest possible loan we could get, right? And at the time, Courtney still had an extremely well-paying job, still does. But she, so she made enough money with my military retirement together, uh, which is peas, but together was enough to where we could go in and walk in and, and demand a five to $7,000 loan and get it that day. And we would do that. And we would get five grand from one place. We would drive across the street and go get another two, three, four, five grand. So on one, within a couple, like a six month period, we'd went to, I think, five different check cashing places. And pulled out as much money as possible with no intention of paying any of this back. So you're talking like 20, 25 grand. And then we would go to banks and we would open up, a, you know, they'd, they'd you know, send you an email like, hey, open up a bank account, put 50 in and we'll give you 250, you know, to, you know, to put in your account. So we would do it. We'd go in and we would write. We would give them 50 cash. And then as soon as we open the account, they put that 50 in there. We'd go home and we would, we would you know, overdraw it by you know, a couple hundred bucks. I mean, there was so many different, we, we'd go to places, rent centers 
and, and we would go, you know, rent a TV and immediately drive to the pawn shop with it, knowing full well we're attached to that TV for the next year. We just signed a contract. We pawned it immediately. And, and so the logic, it, I mean, there is no logic. There is no reasoning. I mean, it's just so sure. It was obvious, I think, for both of us that things had gotten, like she said, so bad where my family had, had disowned me and, and quit talking to me. I'd been, I, had, I had gotten my last $20 from my mom, I guess, sort of say. Um, and so they had disowned me. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. And so the closest people to me were the bad people and the healthy, loving people. My family were, were way out on the outskirts. And it just came to a point for me personally, I think, and I, I, and I don't speak for Courtney, but for, I think she might feel the same way as far as our kids are concerned. When I started seeing, when I pawned my son's Xbox and he came home from school one day and to play, right, and sit down and, you know, ready and excited to play Xbox and it wasn't there. Like, that was tough, right? That was like, I had to, my son came and asked me, like, what happened to my Xbox? And I lied to him. You know, I lied to him. And, and it, it was like, it was soul crushing, but it didn't matter because I had to get high. And it's, it's, I think that for me, when I started seeing that I wasn't being the father that I should be and that our kids were making meals for themselves and were, they just, they weren't taking care, they were taking care of, but they weren't taking care of to the capability for which we were capable of doing. We weren't giving them everything. And so when I, when I personally started feeling that, like they say, sometimes in recovery, you know, we don't, we don't change behaviors you know, unless that behavior becomes personally reprehensible to us, right? Doesn't matter what anybody else says, it's when I'm tired of doing it. I think for me, that's when I hit rock bottom. Everything was gone, everything was done. And then my kids kind of looked at me and were like, you know, hey, something's wrong here. You know, it's not right. Um, plus I signed up, I was a stay-at-home dad at the time, retired from the military. So I felt even more personal about, you know, my job is to raise these kids while she works. Um, and I, I just, I wasn't doing it. I just wasn't doing it. I wasn't, I wasn't doing my job. Um, and that just, that hit hard. I kind of saw myself and my dad in that, you know, my dad treated me like, you know, garbage and here I am not giving the same, you know, giving what my children need. So I, I, for me that, and like Courtney said, the finances and. Yeah. I mean, we, what was your we, rock bottom Courtney? Well, you know, the, for me, you know, I'd always grown up saying like, I, I was never going to turn into to my parents. Like that was, you know, always like, I'm not going to be my parents. I'm not going to, you know, do this or that with, with my kids. I'm going to be, you know, the best mom in the world. And, and, you know, even, even to this day, um, you know, we just, we just hit four years in recovery in April. Congratulations. Thanks brother. Appreciate it. And that is still the things that happened, you know, or that that did not happen, you know, as parents that we should have been doing for our children. Still, I mean, it it puts my stomach in knots to think about it. I mean, it's, been, it's been like the the one thing that you know I'm I'm trying to forgive myself for. You know, it it, it but self forgiveness is so 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 hard. It takes um, time. It takes time. Yeah. And, and that is just, I mean, it, it hits me hard, you know, and, 
I think also, you know, of, of course, the the parents that we weren't being played a, a role in, in hitting rock bottom, but yeah. I, I was tired, you know, I was sick and tired of, of, of being sick. And we had gotten so lucky, I guess you could say, in, in a sense that we hadn't been arrested. Um, you know, I, our kids hadn't been taken away. Although CPS had been to our house numerous times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Children's services had been there a couple times. Um, we had been but, pulled over by police. And, yeah, and, and I mean, he had been, yeah, pulled over with, you know. Drugs. Roxy's, you know, 30s in, in the bill of his hat, you know, yeah. in Nashville. And had, you know, gotten out of it and just, um, you know, so many things that had happened. And it's like, okay, like, our our luck is, is, is done here. I mean, we were, we had at the point where, you know, we were, we had gotten evicted and we, you know, we're going to have anywhere to go. And, you know, once you, once you start feeling, feeling that way and that there's nowhere else to turn and nobody else to manipulate and nothing else left to sell. And you're just, done and tired and of the chase i mean it was the chase was the the worst part chasing down the a drug dealer and you know it's like what what wouldn't you do you know to to get to your drug dealer and make sure that that you could get your fix to get high and it's like well there there wasn't anything that yeah that we wouldn't do and and that's not okay i i yeah i think if i could point out the 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 mutual rock bottom is we we were living in Columbus, Ohio, in Dublin, which is a very expensive place, and we had we had stopped paying our rent a few months prior. We knew we were getting evicted. We knew we had to get out. We had we had just enough money to get a, a rental truck, a U-Haul, and to go find a place to live. And we used that we used the rest of that money to get high. <clears throat> and so we had forty eight hours. We hadn't packed a truck yet. We didn't even have a truck yet. We had no place to go, no place to live. And, and we were driving around, her and I and our, and our kids in the backseat. And they're back there enjoying life and, you know, eating a happy meal and just completely oblivious. We're up, we're in the up, you know, in the front of the car driving around knowing that we have 48 hours to live or to live. <laughs> it's a movie. 48 hours to, to you know, till we're homeless. And... Um, and, and not to mention our credit was so bad from all the all the stupid stuff we had done over the years from the cash checking places and the banks. So many people were after us for, for, for money that we knew pulling into an apartment complex and asking an apartment manager, you know, to, to pull our application. And we knew it wasn't going to happen because that day we had gotten turned turned down or it was too much money we didn't have. And so with with the end of the day coming, we 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 pulled up across the street from this place, this apartment building. And it looked like a retirement home. Yeah, I thought it was like a, a nursing home assisted living. <laughs> and if it was, and, and you know, at that point, I don't think we would have cared. And and I said, look, that place says luxury apartments. It was this 15 story high rise right off the Ohio State campus. And she's like, there's no way. And I was like, well, let's just try it. We have no other options anyway, right? And we were going to go eat at this Burger King right right next door anyway. So for shits and giggles, we'd go in there. We 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 they take us upstairs. They show us the apartment. They were gorgeous apartments. Eighth, eighth floor, you know, overlooking campus or overlooking the opposite direction. It was gorgeous. And we thought there's no way, but we'll try. So we go downstairs and fill out the application. We, we pay the $25 fee, which we didn't really want to do. 
And as we were driving away, we, you know, we thought that was the end of it. So we wake up the next morning, we got 24 hours, we're in bad shape. And this guy, this apartment complex calls us like, Hey, you're approved. You're approved. That must've been a great feeling. I mean, it was like the weight. Yeah, it was like, it, it was, it was almost like, you know, God was like, all right, like, this is, this is this last thing I'm doing yeah. for here. Like, what are you going to do for me? Like, let, let's, yeah. get, let's get, you know, you were that given one, one last chance and a gift. To yeah. And, and that was in, that was in 2018, a couple months before we, we, we decided to make a call for help. Um, so after, yeah, after a couple months of living in that apartment, we moved in in March and by April we were seeking help. Yeah, we were, we knew that that was, you know, going into recovery. Yeah. 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 So how did you go about getting uh, sober? Did you guys do some type of couples thing? Would you separate? Well, we, <laughs> we, both of our journeys are, are very separate. Very different. Yeah. Um, we both had uh, self-healing to do, self-forgiveness. Uh, you know, it's it's something that that we've, you know, both journeyed and, you know, on our own paths. And of course, you know, those paths intersect at some time, sometimes, but we, uh, yeah, we, we both have our own recovery yeah. journeys. I if you don't mind. Yeah. I, I called. So, so April 11th, 2018, I called the VA and, and I had looked up the number several times of their, um, of their rehab, their, their, you know, their, their clinics, the boxing clinics and all the clinics they have there in mental health, the VA. And, and it, I, I had, I had looked it up before I hadn't done it. Cause I thought it would, I thought it would, um, first off, I thought it would be shit, shit care. Um, because in the past I had gotten shit care from the VA and, and they're the ones that had prescribed me this medicine to begin with. It kind of, so I kind of attached them to my addiction as well. So I called and, and I, the first question I asked was like, if I get it accepted into this program, is it going to affect my retirement? Right. That was my first concern was my money. And uh, they're like, no, no, not at all. And they were, you know, they were, they were completely different than anybody else in the VA, the mental health section, right? They, these people understood veterans, they understood, uh, you know, addicts. And the guy was just, he was kind, he was, a, he was a listening ear. And it was the first person other than my wife, that I had, that I had recovered out loud with that I had told my story. It was the first person I ever told my story to. And he's like, well, Josh, you know, it sounds like you're sick. It sounds like you need help. Um, it's not, and he's like, I know we have what you need here. Um, we've dealt with a lot of guys like you. Um, and we have a lot of guys here that, you know, sound like you look like you've been through what you've been through and we'd love to have you. And the next day, um, I drove into the VA and, and, uh, I am processed. I started, I started recovery. Um, and so I started going to meetings once a week. And, and so when I got in there the very first time, you know, as they say, you know, sharing your experience, strength and hope. Um, I saw guys that were my age that had been through similar things. A lot of people have been through a lot harder things, too. And I saw that, you know, these guys are sober. They've been sober for years. Um, they're doing well. Their families are back together. But the funny thing is, I, I do remember one of the first things I was told, and, and, and I don't know, right or wrong, was if you used with your wife the 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 probability of you two staying together is is slim to none, slim to none. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I can, I can only I mean, because like you said, you were just on a feedback. Right. And and I know that in all of the all of the years, the, the decade of addiction that we did together, I, I know personally and I, I can attest to I, I know I caused her pain. I know I hurt her. I know I know I was verbally abusive at times. I never lifted a hand to her, but that doesn't matter. You can gaslight people, verbally abuse them, manipulate them. You know, I, I was doing everything that um, I felt necessary to feed my craving and my high, even though she was my wife and the mother of my children. So I caused her a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And so when I first heard that, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case. Maybe we won't, we won't, we won't stay together. I, I, but I wasn't ready for that, actually, at all. I wasn't ready for that. I didn't want to hear that. Um, and so I, I never really looked at it like that. I always looked at it like, you know, hey we use together. Um, we can get clean together too. Right. You know, I, I, and, and so healthy or not that thought process. So I stuck with the VA for three years and I love them. They're, they're, I still have a weekly meeting with one of them. Um, Kristen is my, is my, uh, she's my social worker from, from heaven. Um, she's amazing. She's a, a great person. Um, but honestly, it wasn't until I invited God and Christ into my recovery. That's when things changed for me personally. Um, that's when my recovery, cause I got stagnant, right? It, it, it's, it's not easy to stop snorting things and shooting things and smoking things and drinking things. Um, but it's a lot easier to not pick up in the morning. It's a lot harder to be emotionally sober. Right. Um, I mean, you know, you know, the drill it's, it's, yeah. um, it's a lot harder. And so I had gotten stagnant in my recovery. I was like, okay, I'm recovered. Um, you know, I've, I've got, you know, everything's okay right now. And, I, and it's comfortable. It's, I feel secure. I'm comfortable. And, and I was encouraged to take the next step. And when I invited my, you know, I started using my higher power, my faith. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to Courtney about it. It's like, you know, I, I really want to start a faith journey. I want, I want to go to church again. Like I want to, you know, I want to, go down this path. And at that time we were in two completely different places. Um, and I'll let her tell you about the beginning. Yeah, of her. So, so tell us about yours, Courtney, about uh, your recovery. Yeah. So I, um, I, I don't have care through, through the VA. Um, I wasn't on active duty as they say long enough. So I had my own like personal health insurance through my employer um, so I started going to a suboxone clinic uh, up in Columbus at the same time, pretty much that, that you know, Josh and I made that decision that, that, you know, it was time to do something. And for probably the first three years of um, while I was in recovery, that's that's all I really did. I went to my you know, appointment once a month. I, I got my Suboxone. I'd went to maybe one or two meetings, but I just didn't really, um, connect with it, I guess you could say. And, you know, they, it, it, you know, they say at least give, give it six weeks at least, you know, before you say if you like the group or not. But, um, I, I didn't do that. I, I was brought up very, um, to be very independent and you don't show weakness and, you know, you need to do, you know, you need to handle your own issues internally. Like you don't, you don't talk about them. You don't express them. Um, you know, if there's conflict, you just, 
brush it under the rug and and act like it never happened the next day like that that's what i that's how i thought you processed emotions you know you just you didn't process them so um at about yeah about three years of being in recovery i was seeing you know josh go through this amazing journey like he had started on his faith journey and was doing his his weekly meetings at that point i think he was doing them once a month um you know because he'd been in the program for for a while and i was you know seeing him connect with his, his faith and and god and i honestly i got jealous <laughs> I, I was like i want what you have um so we ended up moving the this the, the house that we we moved to which this is you know if this isn't the lord then i don't know what is but we ended up um, moving into the house we're in and our we call them our our driveway neighbors they um actually lead you know oversee the recovery program at our church for men and women for men and women that's great <laughs> Yeah. So um, Josh started going to, you know, some of the meetings and I don't think it was very long after that, you know, I mustered up the courage and walked over there and, uh, you know, I got more information about it and ended up uh, going as well. And, you know, there are our driveway neighbors are both of our sponsors. <laughs> now, and um that's great yeah yeah i mean it, to, to, to 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 tell that story even more extraordinary my ex-wife passed away in september of 2020 yeah sorry to hear that thanks and we had shared my oldest son my, my our 13 year old and he, and she died when he was 11 and when we were living in columbus it was just me courtney and our two younger kids that we had together and we got a call one day <clears throat> Not one day when we knew we knew, she had beat cancer and then all of a sudden it metastasized and, and she went within 48 hours and it was really, really tough. Now, the onus was I have a kid with her. So now I'm going from a part time dad to now there's some custody stuff things you get talked about. We were in Columbus. They were in, in Centerville, Ohio, about an hour and 15 minute separation via a car. <clears throat> and so uh, the decision came down to we, we need to move. He, he just lost his mom at 11 years old. He, you know, the, he, had, he was broken, completely broken, kind of still is. And we didn't want to move him to Columbus. We didn't want to take him out of his social environment. We didn't want to take him out of his school. His grandparents are here, which are a massive part of his life. So we just, her and I decided we were, going to move, we were going to move here to where we are right now. And so she went down kind of first to, to find a place to live. And, and we had to find a house that had the bedrooms we need and the bathrooms. But it had to be within this specific school zone, within the specific city, right? So, so it was already a limited option thing. There were only two homes available in the entire city that met this criteria for me to get custody of them. One of them was this house. The other one, I think we're owned by the same people too, or? No, it was a... But it was junk. Yeah. It was junk. So this house was the only option. Long story short, it cost about 15 grand for us to buy out of our apartment lease up in Columbus, two grand for the truck, 
and 3,500, four grand to, you know, first and last and security deposit for this house, right? Here's the interesting part. Six months before my ex-wife passed away, I had finally made amends to my mother and my stepdad and my sister, right? I hadn't spoken to them in six or seven years. They hadn't seen my, our kids in six or seven years. I had just made amends with them. I remember calling my mom. We don't, our relationship had just finally picked back up after six months. And, and we were talking about her, my ex-wife's death. And we were in and talking about how, you know, we need to move, but it's going to cost 15 to $16,000. And there's, I, I was talking to her about how I'm about to have a conversation with my 11 year old son to let him know that as much as I want to be there for him, it's going to be about a year and a half, two years until we can move down there. Cause we just can't afford it. And you're going to have to live with your grandparents until then. So from his mom's, to his grandparents and then to us. I mean, just a lot of movement. And I remember my mom saying, how much do you need? And this was a woman who I had stolen from, who I had manipulated. I mean, just all the normal stuff that, that happens. I, I mean, I just, I ran, I steamrolled her. I ran over her and, and got, and, and I just, I drained her dry and, and we had no relationship at all. And she asked me that. And I told her how much it was. And we, we kept talking. And, and then I remember her texting me uh, about an hour later and was like, hey, um, your dad, my, my stepdad, Tom, um, we, we, we want to fund your move. And we're going to give you the money. And it wasn't a loan. It, it was take this money from us. And it was what? How much was it? it was like 15? I think it was 15,000? Yeah. 10? Yeah. 10, about 10 grand? 10 grand. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, and this coming from someone who I just made amends from who I, you know, I mean, so it was like, we got, you know, I'd made amends, thank God to the program, right? The program, the 12 step program, the you know recovery, I made amends. If I wouldn't have done that, we wouldn't have had the money to move where we are. And if we wouldn't have had the money to move where we are, we wouldn't be in this house. And we get in this house, we happen to move in across the street from two people a husband and wife who've been married and both in recovery for 30 plus years. The guy, he, he runs the men's recovery for the entire church and she runs the women's recovery for the entire church. And we happen to move across the street from these people. And long story short, you know, uh, I meet him first. We get to talking. I felt compelled to tell him I was in recovery and he felt compelled to tell me that he's, he's got options for me. And, and I was looking, we were already looking for a church anyway. So uh, we were, we started going to that church, started going to meetings. Um, about a month or two later, I asked him to be my sponsor. He accepted. And then with a little bit of time after that, like Courtney said, um, she asked his wife to be her sponsor. Um, so now, you know, to, to me, he's like a father figure, spiritual advisor, uh, sponsor. I mean, you know, the sponsor relationship is um, incredible. But just for all that to happen, to live across the street from people like that, the people we needed most in our lives at that time just happened to be right there. Um, and, and so for me, that's, you know, that, that's God telling me, you know, hey, you're in the right place. You're doing the right thing. And I'm going to put the right people in your path that you need right now. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's still even to even to this day. I mean, we've we've been here almost two years now and I still get emotional thinking about you know how how just how we ended up where we're at and you know having them you know as our neighbors I mean they've just it's incredible it's incredible 
Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the, where, you know, so now as far as where we're at in recovery, um, we go to meetings separately. We also go to some meetings together. We do an ACA meeting together, you know, the adult children of alcoholics, dysfunctional families. Okay. Yeah. So that, so that uses the 12 step plus talks about, you know, inner child and the things that happen to us as kids and, and why we are the way we are. And so we do it separately. We do it together. Um, I just started, I'm a sponsor now. So now I sponsor, I have, I have a sponsee um, in AA. Um, we're in training to be uh, mentors. We're, we're to be marriage mentors. Um, so anybody that comes to our church that wants to get married at our church, they have to go through marriage counseling before they get married, basically. Um, yeah, pre-marital. pre-marital counseling. And uh, so we'll be the couple that some of them sit down with and get mentored by before they get married. So to go... <laughs> to go from this completely unhealthy addiction bomb of a family um, where, you know, we're just in a dire straits and bad places to now, you know, where we're at. I mean, it's got to be a higher power, right? Because the best that I could do personally, um, you know, got me to drugs and alcohol. That's the best I could do. That was that was that was my my one shot I had led me to drugs and alcohol and to go from that to where I am now, I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's my, you can probably tell by what I'm wearing. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, you know, that, that's my higher power. Um, you know, because for me, it was all about surrendering, right? I've always thought I could control everything. It was as soon as I surrendered to my higher power and just, and handed it over and started working the 12 steps that to me, that even though I'd already been sober for three and a half years, that's what saved my life was, was a 12 step program. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a spiritual program, but I like me, I'm agnostic, so I'm in the middle. I just don't know. But yeah, I think if you are religious, it helps you with the program because I mean, in seven out of the 12 steps, they mention God, and that's yeah. okay. It was written in the 1930s and it was the best they could come up with. Yeah, but I think religion's a beautiful thing because the one thing I always say is all religions are alike in regards to be a good person, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't murder, etc. You know what I mean. So they all kind of give a, they're all guidelines of just how to be a good person. Yes. So, and then there comes step 12, being a good person and giving back what you've been given so freely. You know, I, I, we have our own 10 steps for Addicts Anonymous, but I love AA. I have all the, I've read the book a couple of times. I think because the thing that's cool about them, they were the first self-help group for addicts, period, dot the end. That did not exist before them. So this guy was a real innovator in what he did. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. To, to oh, be yeah. the one guy who says, "I think I can help alcoholics." You gotta want. You gotta be a little cocky, but you also gotta be someone that dedicated. Oh yeah, yeah, and and especially at that time period to take something on like that. Um, oh yeah, because it was very very stigmatized. Yeah, I mean, we're you know to 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 want to to spend your life dealing with with the with the deplorables, the the gutter the gutter people. It's 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 kind of like what I you know speaking of step twelve, like what you're doing with this podcast. I mean, you can tell it. You've got an emotional response. Um, I'm probably after we hang up, I'll probably I'll probably cry like a a small child. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, so this has been extremely healthy. Um, You know, you're you're giving us a platform, um, but you're also allowing other people to hear this. So that's, you know, experience, you know, sharing experience, strength, and hope, but you're able to reach people 
you know, on a much larger level, much higher output than, than any single one person. So I just, I, I just, I just wanted to say, I love what you're doing. I love this. Um, I just, I think this is great. I really, because you know, there's a lot of them, there's a lot of podcasts out there, right? There's tons of podcasts, but I, but most of them, you have somebody talking at you and you, you, right. And you have someone teaching you and they're good. Right. You know, um, but you never have someone like you, who's a guy who, who also is in recovery um, talking. It, it's, it's like sitting on, sitting in on a meeting. Right. And, and exactly, you, you, like a speaker meeting. That's the way I kind of saw it was I don't have to do much. I mean, obviously I have to, I've learned the art of interviewing and asking the right questions, but uh, I don't really have to do much. Like you guys are great storytellers. For some reason I've noticed that about addicts. We're great storytellers. Yeah. For yeah, some reason, for, we all we all know how to tell our story. It's very rare that I, I mean, every now and then I do have a person that you got to kind of pull the story out of them. But most people are very good storytellers. Yeah. But I appreciate you thanking me for doing this. You know, I just want to just like you want to give back. I want to give back. You know, this is one of the best ways I could think how. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. So I didn't. I just, <laughs> that's all I have. Yeah, All right, yeah. cool. So my last question that I ask everyone is, do you guys have any advice, whether it be just for single people or for couples? Ooh, that is a phenomenal question. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you would call it advice, but I can tell you, um, you know, some of the things that, that have helped me and keep me going. Um, yeah, let's know, hear it. It's, you know, in the, in the rooms and through the program, um, you know, I've, I've learned so much, you know, about, about myself and, and, you know, others as well. And, you know, I've, I've been trying to work on, you know, this emotional sobriety and which was foreign to me. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that, um, that, that was even something that, that you worked on. So, you know, exploring that and the, the concept of, you know, self-forgiveness, it's, um, that's kind of the hurdle I'm trying to tackle right now is, is forgiving myself because I have so much shame, um, you know, from, from my past. So, I'm trying to, you know, go, go through all of, all of the things that have made me who I am and taking accountability for, for what, you know, I contributed to and, and forgiving people that, that need to be forgiven. And there's been, you know, some relationships, for example, you know, with my, my mother that I've had to, you know, detach from her with love and, begin to set boundaries because it was, I was still being manipulated by her and cowering, you know, to, you know, to, to anything she said or did, I went right back to being, you know, that, that 10 year old little girl that, that was being manipulated and used and, you know, didn't know where I had fit into this world. So I've, you know, I, I've been processing all that and, you know, that that's, it's been extremely hard, but it's also helped me to, you know, 
start this emotional sobriety journey on top of, you know, my, my recovery with, with drugs and alcohol. And I'm learning to name my feelings and express them, which is, you know, another, that's a foreign concept to me. I never, you know, spoke about anything that was going on with me, you know, and that was also my, my codependency. Like I, I wanted to make sure that everybody else was taken care of and their needs and wants were, were met with no consideration to my own. So I would, I would definitely say, um, you know, just, I mean, forgive yourself, you know, like I, I've had to, you know, yeah. Joshua always said, you know, God's forgiven us for our past. Why haven't you? So yeah. that's been, you know, something that that's been in the back of my mind every time, you know, I start to be critical of myself or, you know, that I, I should have done this differently or I'm punishing myself for things that, that I had no control over. So, um, yeah, definitely, um, you know, I would say it's, it's healthy and okay to, like I said, detach with love and set boundaries. And for me, you know, I'm with, with like my relationship with my mother or relationships from the past, you know, I'm no longer a child without choices. Mm, mm. I can make my own decisions. I can choose who I allow into my life and, you know, and the people that aren't fulfilling my life and bringing me joy and happiness and are just dragging me down. They, I don't have to allow them to be, you know, a part of, of my family, my life, my world, yep. you know, and, and that that's been hard too. It, yeah. It's, it, it's hard, you know, but but yeah, that that's uh, you know some things that have helped me along the way, and maybe they'll help someone else. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate you sharing that. Um, yeah, <clears throat> for me, um, you know, if you know whether you're whether you're uh, led by faith or you're you know digging into the chapter for the agnostics, um, you know, one you're not you're not alone. Um, you're not even remotely alone. Um, two, self can't heal self. This can't be done alone. Um, this can't be managed alone. This can't be fought alone. This this takes a sisterhood or a brotherhood. This takes a meeting. Um, and there's there's, I, I think one of the one of the first things I realized is I hated myself. I had no love for myself whatsoever. Um, and I and and I would get my validation and my affirmations and my self-worth from others. Um, and it wasn't until I got into the rooms, into to the meetings and, and picking up literature and going on my journey um, to where I, I, I realized that, A, people in recovery, even if it's your first meeting, they love you. They're excited you're there because you're one of them and, and you have this undeniable bond and tie um, that can be broken. Um, so there's people out there you can heal with. Um, my advice is, is to sit, to sit in gratitude and acceptance. Um, the, the two most important things for me uh, to understand and realize is that yesterday is gone. It's dead. It's all over. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Um, and tomorrow, as much as we think that we have this illusion of control, we just don't. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. Um, so if we can't touch yesterday and we can't affect tomorrow, 
then, then today is all there is. I mean, that's it. And we might not do well today as we did yesterday. And tomorrow we might not do as well as we do today, but that's, that's all we have. There's literally nothing else. The, the, you know, today is it. Live for today. Um, don't assign value to what other people think of you. Um, you have extreme value and worth, whether you get that from God or whether you get that from, from some other place. Um, you're worth this. You're worth every step, every minute, every meeting. Um, and, and I think lastly, finding, finding people that are like you that are willing to recover out loud. Um, like this podcast, you know, I I listened to a lot of people beforehand. I listened to a bunch of episodes and I'm going to continue to listen to all of them. Um, because hearing other people's stories tells me that I'm not, I'm not some piece of crap. I'm not, I'm human. I'm flawed. I'm going to fail. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to meet people's expectations. I am not going to, there's so many things I'm not going to do. I'm going to fail every single day, but that's okay. It's okay to fail. It's okay to not be perfect. Um, And, you know, just keep worrying about you. You know, I'm sure everybody's heard this, but, you know, the the program is very, a very selfish program um, in the first, in the first, you know, year or so, um, because you can't give others what you don't have. If you don't love yourself, you can't love others. If, if, you know, it's just, it's impossible. So if, if you want it, you got to give it away. And I know that might not make sense to some people, but if, if you, if you want to be loved and you want to be, if you want to be loved, you got to give love away. If you want to be trustworthy, you got, you've, you've, you, you've got to give trust to people. Um, listen to these podcasts, listen to the stories and, and you'll find your home there. You'll find your hope. Uh, you'll listen to experience and you'll get strength from it. That's what we're trying to do one day at a time. That's all there is one day. Yep. And you know, if, if you chase your recovery, recovery, you know, half as much as you used to chase your drug dealer down to get high and get your fix, then I'd say you're, you're doing all right. You're in good shape. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, this has been great. I really just want to say thank you to both of you. This has been an exceptional interview, I think. Thanks. Thank yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Th- and, and, you know, thanks for giving us a platform. Thanks for, for listening to us and hearing us. And uh, I mean, just, I can't say it enough. I we really appreciate what you're doing here. This is, this is, this is a big deal. Thank you. I'm going to continue yeah. on as long as I can. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So for everyone watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below, give us a like, also subscribe to see when we upload new videos You can check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit. Go to our Facebook group. You'll see under our events tab that we do nightly Zoom meetings every night at 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. So that's all I have for today. And until next time.